I showed you when we started the book of Romans, and we have kind of taken a little side tour uh, based on uh, a concept in Romans chapter 8 that dealt with principles. I, uh, the book of Romans is a book that really defines the principles for New Testament Christianity. I told you when we started that in the old days they used to call the book of Romans the Constitution of Christianity. It was the document that God wrote to you and me that really defines all of the doctrinal issues uh, that you find in Christianity. And I told you that the importance of this book uh, is unparalleled with any other book in the Bible. Uh, normally, Romans is one of those books that everybody will tell you, and I would have told you this also many years ago, uh, that it was probably the hardest book. But we saw that the key to understanding the book is the way that it is written. How Paul approaches this, much like our founding fathers approached the writing of the Constitution, in a very legal format that uh, really defines everything in terms that are very, very, very biblical and very, very doctrinal. And given the fact that we all live in a Laodicean church age and are not too biblical and have no doctrine, it's easy to see how people can get messed up with, that, with those books and how important they really are. And I showed you how that, uh, uh, the way that your New Testament begins to lay out, I showed you that you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, remember? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John basically give you the historical books that bring you up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Then you have the next book, and the book is the book of Acts. The book of Acts is basically uh, what, the, what the title says. Uh, we call it the book of Acts, but in reality, that book is called the Acts of the Apostles. And it's basically what the apostles are doing during that intermediate time from Christ's death till Paul comes on the scene in relationship to God dealing with the nation of Israel. We talked about the book of Acts, and I showed you how that the book of Acts basically transitions you from the historical books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, uh, and which primarily deal with the nation of Israel, and then bring you into the church age, and then that's why you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, historical books. You have Acts, the transitional book, and then by the time you get to the book of Acts, you were, you were in the church age. And so it's no accident that the next book that God put in the order of the books in your New Testament is the book that defines what the church really is all about and gives you the fundamental doctrines by which everything that we believe is based on. That would be the book of Romans. And then, uh, and then after that, you have the books that are written to the churches. After that, you have the books that are written to the individuals. Uh, and then it goes on from there. I showed you how that the book of Romans uh, breaks down into four natural sections uh, for better understanding. And I told you how the chapters 1 through chapter 5 focus on the historical aspect. Chapter 6 through chapter 8, and that's where we're at right now in chapter 8, deal with the great doctrines of the church. And he begins to lay it out in chapter 6 and brings it all the way up to chapter 8. Chapter 9, 10, and 11 deal with a prophetic sense of what God is going to do doctrinally in the future with the church, the nation of Israel, and puts that all into perspective. And then in chapter, or the fourth section, and I really can't wait to get to this section, but there's so much that we have to deal with, it'll be a ways there. But the fourth section, chapters 12 through chapter 16, is the practical section. It shows you and I how that as a New Testament Christian we are to live our lives. It shows us what our attitude should be toward everything that we're supposed to be as Christians. And it really gives you the summation of everything that we have to, uh, uh, the way we need to look at things and the way we need to conduct ourselves. 
And that's how the book breaks down. Remember last night in Institute, and I, I told you, I gave you a verse in Hebrews there as we were looking at it, and I told you that the single greatest concept that I've invested my life in uh, for 40-plus years of studying the Bible has been understanding the term that everything, in, and I showed you the passages last night. I showed you how that everything in the Bible falls down and breaks down into a pattern. Finding those patterns are absolutely key to understanding your Bible. I give you those patterns all the time. I even mention those patterns in the process of, of what we're looking at and what we're trying to accomplish in it. And then I, and, I, and I showed you how that in these four sections, which are the pattern of the book of Romans, these four sections, how each chapter has its own pattern, and it breaks down. And that's what we've been doing, coming through each chapter of the book of Romans, uh, putting it into the context of the overall book, but then looking at it in chapter by chapter. And that brings us up, or brings us back, I should say, to where we're at in Romans chapter 8. And I've told you this before, Romans chapter 8 is probably the greatest chapter in the book of Romans. It's certainly the, the weightiest chapter. Because I don't know of another chapter in the Bible that has more doctrinal material in it that you and I need to know. We, we've, we've come through it pretty much halfway through it. I told you that the, the, the theme of Romans chapter 8 is the redemption of your body. It shows you that there's two adoptions, and it lays them out very clearly. Something that is totally unknown to most of God's people today, and this is why so many people struggle with their own salvation. You would be surprised of how many people uh, that do not understand uh, how they got saved. And consequently, because of that, they're every day, every day they're afraid that they're going to do something that God is going to take the salvation back from them. And of course, Book of Romans, and especially Romans chapter 8, puts that to rest if you're paying attention and studying the Word of God. It shows you that there's two adoptions. You were adopted once spiritually, that's the day you got saved. And the theme of Romans chapter 8 shows you there's another adoption coming, and that is going to be the adoption of your physical body when you get a glorified body just like Christ. As we were coming through Romans chapter 8, that forced us, if you remember, that forced us to look at some more great doctrinal teachings that many, many people are messed up on. And I talked to you about the heresy of amillennialism and postmillennialism how that these two false teachings uh, come into churches and they come into Christians' lives because they don't understand the book of Romans and how that the Bible's approach to the second coming of Christ is what we call a premillennial approach. He's coming back before the millennium where the postmillennial thinks that he's going to make the world a better place to live and when he gets the world all cleaned up, then Christ comes back. That ain't ever going to happen. And then the amillennialist, he believes there's no millennial at all. And uh, it just continues on, and, and we just get better and better through a process of Christian evolution, I guess. But we know now that the premillennial doctrine is the right one. We looked at the two that are wrong. And we talked about the great doctrine of the rapture of the church, which is fast becoming a doctrine that most churches don't believe today. And we talked about that, how that you know in the Bible that when we talk about a rapture of the church, uh, and we explained all that and showed you how it is a Bible doctrine and always has been. Then we looked at the aspect of, of you and me as a Christian becoming a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I mean, that is probably the single greatest thing in this chapter. And what it means in, to understand the fact that someday, if you're saved this morning, someday you're going to reign with Him for all of eternity in a glorified body. You know what? I say things like that today, and with most of God's people, it just doesn't resonate at all. It doesn't mean anything. It's like, oh, okay, 
let's get home so we can see the ball game. Oh, okay, well, let's go home so I, I want to do this or I want to do that. That is single, that, that, is the, that is the whole crux of everything that we are as Christians. That is the end. That is, as Paul said in the book of Hebrews, that is the sum of all matters. It's going to end the day you and I get glorified with Christ and become a joint heir. The single greatest concept in all of the Bible that is probably the most unknown concept in all of the Bible. Then we looked at verse 18, which was a great principle and a great promise. that puts it all into perspective. In the re- I call it a reality verse where he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And that's a reference to you understanding what, what we go through right now. The trials and the tribulations, the heartaches, the things that we struggle with are all part of the process. And someday when you stand uh, there with Him, and you look back with the mind of Christ firmly encased in your glorified body, which you have in a book right now. And you look back and you understand God's program of eternity past. And you understand God's program of eternity future. And in crystal clarity, you understand where you're at in your life and relationship to it. It'll all come into focus for you. I guess as a pastor or dealing with people, that is the single, most single, hardest thing to get people to do in their life, and that is to stay focused on why we are doing what we're doing. Staying focused on what our job is after we get saved. And that's a great principle. Then we talked about verses 19 through 24. We talked about the curse on planet Earth. How that the animals also uh, are looking for the manifestation of the sons of God. We talked about Isaiah chapter 11 and how that takes place when Christ comes back in the millennium. Then, and this is where we got into the principles, then we talked about verse 26, 27, and 28. We talked about our prayer life. And I showed you the Bible says there's three infirmities we all have, and one of them is not knowing how to pray. And we took a very lengthy uh, study on prayer and laid that out in all the areas and put it all together, and then we took that, and we went from that into the principles and showed you how that the principles apply, and we probably were there for four, five, six weeks. So that's where we're at and brings us back up to speed. Now today, we're in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. And today we're going to start to look at something that in time uh, you really need to grasp and understand. Part of my job in equipping you is not only to teach you what's right in Christianity, but also to teach you what's wrong with Christianity. It would be a perfect world if everything that was taught out there that you just turned on the radio or sat down and listened to a preacher or listened to a Christian. It would be a wonderful situation if everybody taught the truth and everybody laid the Bible out the way it was supposed to be laid out. But obviously we know that that's not true. It's not just something that's relevant in our time. If you go back through the history of the church, you will find that in every age and dispensation of the church, there's always some some heretical teaching that's been taught that have messed people up and kept people from ever getting the truth of God and what God wants them. It was true in Paul's time. When Paul's writing the, the letters to the churches or the letters to the young men like Timothy and Philemon and Titus, he's warning them and telling them that there's already people at work who want to corrupt the Word of God and destroy the basic, pure teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ found in the Word of God. And so we're going to start and look at a teaching today that has probably uh, uh, messed up a lot of Christians down through through the history. And it's something that uh, uh, starts uh, back in the middle of the the, uh, 16th century, 
uh, 17th century, and then getting to develop itself through there, and then uh, kind of went under by the wayside for a while, and then resurrected itself uh, in the last 50 years, and now is becoming a strong thing with, with many of Ch- God's people, and uh, it's uh, got a lot of people uh, messed up. And I might say that uh, this study is going to be a little different than normally, because I'm not just giving this to you. For the last three or four years of, my, of our ministry, I've had about 15 or 16 people that have either emailed me or called me or I've met at some point wanting me to do a, a something on this that they could have as a definitive something uh, for their own church or for their people in their church. I have requests all the time, for, uh, and I could spend all day long doing it, I just don't have time to do it. I have requests all the time that people will send in to me and say, hey, look, I want to study this. Will you make me a tape of just this particular thing and send it out to me so I can study it? I could do that all day long. And I have about 15 or 16 people that over the last couple of years have been asking me to do something on, on the concept of Calvinism, on the concept of what we know as predestination on the concept of what is known today as Reformation theology. Because it's a fast thing that many, many churches are being sucked into. It's something in time, if you're going to grow to some point in your life, you are going to embrace it some way or some shape, some form. You're going to run into somebody that uh, believes in the concept of, of Calvinism. You're going to bl- run into somebody who believes in the concept of predestination. And I wanted to define it for you today, not only for you, but for the folks that have been waiting for this, you know, I kept telling them, I said, you know what, I'm in Romans, just give me some time, I'll get there, I don't have time to do it now, I've got to take care of my own people. Well, time has come. But to people out there that have loved ones that are caught up in this, I know of one lady in particular that just bugged me to death, that her daughter and her son-in-law are caught up in this. And uh, they don't seemingly uh, have any answers for them. And of course, uh, we know the answers are in the Bible, and, and that's what we're going to talk about today and, uh, and so we're going to deal with this for the next couple of weeks. Now, my goal is simple. I don't like to do anything halfway. And so what I want to do, since I'm already here and we're dealing with this, I want to deal with this in the proper way where when we're done with this, we have everything laid out that you have the tools, that you are equipped to go home and study this. In time, you're going to have to learn every heresy out there. And I'm not going to have a heresy class where we just go through all the different heresies. I can do it in the course of what we're doing with what we're studying naturally through the book of Romans. Because sooner or later, every heresy that you're going to get into is going to bang up against something in Romans because Romans is the structure for what we believe. We've already looked at the heresy of amillennialism and postmillennialism, so you should have those down. We already talked about the heresy that there is no rapture, so that one's already done. So this is just one more in a series as we work through Romans and, and uh, here again in chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, we're faced up with the word and the concept of predestination. And we want to we wanna define it for you today. Now let me talk to you about heresy. And, uh, you know, when you talk about somebody who's into heresy or a heretic, a heretic is a person who teaches heresy, uh, you know, you're going to find that heresy comes in two formats. You're going to find heresy that is outside Christianity. That kind of heresy will be the heresy that you've got to be baptized to go to heaven. See, that's a heresy. That if you believe you're going to have to be baptized to go to heaven, you're going to split hell wide open. That's not a teaching in the Bible. Baptism doesn't save you. You have people who believe you've got to work your way to heaven. And of course, that's a heresy. But those are heresies outside of Christianity. In other words, those are heresies that will send you to hell. 
Then you have another form of heresy, is heresy that is within Christianity. And that is the heretical teachings that come into the body of Christ that won't send you to hell, but will certainly mess you up when it comes to the Bible. Hey, it goes back to the thing I've told you many, many times. If the devil can't get you into one heresy that sends you to hell, and you get saved in spite of that, then he'll try to get you into another heresy that'll keep you from growing or being effective. That's just the way it is. But you need to understand in dealing with people and dealing with concepts that you're going to run into heresy. Now, our first impression of that would, would, would scare us. Or we would think, or every pastor would say, well, I, I want to keep heresy out of my church. I don't want heresy creeping in. You know, there is no real danger in heresy. In fact, Paul takes the opposite position. He says that heresy is a good thing. And I guess it's one of those things that you're always going to have it, so you might as well figure out how to use it to your own advantage. And there's a lot of truth to that. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, he said, and we talked about this last week, he talks about the fact that therefore there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be manifest among you. And you've got to remember that Paul said that, that heresies are a good thing. He said there, there must also be heresies among you. And the reason why heresies are important and the reason why a church that is a New Testament local church doesn't have to worry about heresy creeping in because they have such a strong stand on teaching the Bible and Bible truth and Bible doctrine that heresies have no penetration point. You know what? You find in the early 1st and 2nd century a lot of bad teaching creeping up. You find the concept of, of water baptism for salvation. You find the concept of, of, uh, of a lot of uh, baptizing babies and a lot of concepts of, uh, that began to, uh, began to uh, bring itself upon the church. But when you look at the early true church, the people that followed a guy like Nestorius or the people who followed a guy like the Manichians, or the people who found the guys like uh, uh, the, uh, the early first century church. You know, those guys never had a problem with heresy. You know why they never had a problem with heresy? Because they took such a strong stand on the Bible that they had, and they taught it that heresy has no way to get in. You know why a church doesn't have to be afraid of heresy? Or maybe I should say this. Do you know when a church needs to be afraid of heresy? When they kept quit teaching and preaching the Bible. The thing that keeps heresy out of this church will be the strong teaching and belief and the doctrinal fundamentals that we keep pounding into your head week after week that does not let, that does not let the heresies ever take root. And in that case, it's a good thing because Paul says that heresies, heresies really show you who the real good guys are and show you who the bad guys are. Paul said in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, he said there's going to be men who come in who bring in false teaching. There's going to be men who come in and try to divide the church. You know what Paul said? He said, you mark those men. You mark them. You mark them. He told you in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, basically the same thing. He says that you have an object lesson right before you. And you don't have to be afraid of heresy coming into your church, hurting your church, or hurting people when you have a whole church full of people who know the Bible, understand the Bible, and realize that what the Bible teaches in a doctrinal format. Now, that's my job. And that's why when it comes to the Bible, I'm not wishy-washy with you. 
When it comes to the Bible, I don't care if you like what I teach or you don't like what I teach. I'm going to give you the truth and tell you what the Bible says because I'm not interested in making your day. I'm interested in making you strong when it comes to the Bible. I want you to stand alongside of me and help keep the church in the right doctrinal frame of mind that keeps the heresies out. And the day you got to worry is the day when I get up here and start giving you some wishy-washy sermon that means absolutely nothing to you anymore. Of course, that'll never happen. But the bottom line is simply this. That's exactly where you need to be. I see the same thing with people uh, coming up in Christianity. You know, years ago, I think, you know, we talk about, we talk about young people and, 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 and young people being destroyed by the world and young people being destroyed by the things of the world. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you in Christianity what destroyed more young people than would ever thought about. And it was a concept that started back in the 60s uh, and come up through the 70s and 80s and pretty much prevalent today is the Christian school movement. I guarantee you the Christian school movement destroyed more of God's children than anything the world ever had to offer. You know why it did? Because parents thought that the Christian school was the answer to raising their kids right. They were afraid of the fact that if they let their kids go to public school, that they would get destroyed. Because we all know what's in the public school. Let me ask you a question. You that like to eat salads. You that like to eat tomatoes. Or for those of you that are classical, tomatoes. Let me ask you a question. Which is better? Hothouse tomatoes? Or the ones that are little big beefy ones that you grow out in your backyard? The garden ones, right? You know what? There's something. I don't trust hothouse tomatoes. They're, 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 they're not as big. They're not as bulky. And they don't, they don't have the same texture. You know why? Because we thought somebody grew them in a hothouse. And growing them in a hothouse, oh, you may have protected them from the bugs. You may have protected them from the element and the rain and the frost. But you know what? Sometimes those are things that you need to have in raising tomatoes that makes the tomatoes better than the hothouse ones. You know what? You're under a false concept if you think you have to keep all the things of the world out of your child's life. You're making a big mistake. You know what you're going to do? You're going to raise up a child that has no concept of the world, has no concept of interrelationship with other worlds. They were raised in a hothouse. You either homeschooled them or you, or you, or you put them to a Christian school. And when they go out into the world, and sooner or later they're going to have to, you know what they're going to do? They're going to collapse like a broken house of cards. You know why? Because your whole life you raised them in a hothouse. You never let them come home. Our society has turned that way. You ever notice in the little kids thing that nobody loses anymore? Nobody loses anymore. And we think that in our, in our green society, you know, where everything has to be positive, that you know, we don't want this little child to feel like he's a loser. Well, let me tell you something. All my life as a little guy, I, I, I lost at everything I did. And look what it made me. <laughs> Losing is a part of life. Losing builds character. Losing is something that if you, it builds determination that next time I'm going to succeed. And you've got to understand that sooner or later the world's going to come knocking door. You know what? People are afraid of heresy like parents are afraid of the public school system. And the truth of the matter is if parents saw the public school system, for what it really is. It's a tool to train your child. Use the system against itself. 
If you're a parent, you know what you do in in a school system, in a public school? You as a parent get involved. You be there. You help that teacher. You put the influence in. You make sure. And then when your kid comes home and says, Johnny said this, or Mary said this, or Tommy did that, then, or that they happened this at school today, or this happened that, then you have a comparison to show them what the Bible says and use the system against itself. In other words, do the same thing that we're supposed to do with heresy. Heresy is not a bad thing if you use it the right way. It's only a bad thing when you don't use it. You have to fear it when you don't know how to use it against itself. And as a parent, you have to fear the world when you don't understand how to use that world system against itself to help your child become what it needs to become. You don't, you don't isolate your child from the world. You insulate your child from the world. And there's a process to do that. I'm not going to isolate you from heresy. I'm going to insulate you from heresy by the biblical principle. Why? Because when you use the system against itself, it proves who's right and who's wrong. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's heresy that shows you the truth. It establishes the real from the phony. And it's, it's, it's like the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, where God's people are blown about by every wind of doctrine. Everything that comes down the line. Every new thing you see on the internet, every new thing that somebody says, oh, we run out and we, 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 we get worried because of the fact that uh, we don't know how to deal with it. And I'm telling you, this is the reason why this church, or you, if you're equipping yourself, never have to be afraid of heresy. You never have to be afraid of a heretic. You never have to be afraid of a heresy. And as a pastor, I certainly don't worry about it ever creeping into this church. You know why? Because truth needs no defense. Truth will stand on its own two feet. Heresy will not. Heresy will not. That's why you're going to find that uh, in every heresy you have, they have to add something to it. They just can't stay with the Bible. When I teach you, you don't see me running outside and adding something to prop it up what I want to believe. Truth is truth, and truth needs no defense because it will stand on its own two legs. And that's the approach you have to take. I gave it to you last week. The answer is real simple. It was in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 21. And I hope you got it down in your Bibles by this week, but you probably don't. And that was the fact that God, the whole thing, this whole concept of everything we do, was that in everything that God gave you, was that God, that you would know from God the certainty the certainty, the certainty of the words of truth. You know what's true and what's not. You know what is certain and what is not. And you need to know in time all of the heresies. We don't have time to go through them. And as I said, I'm not going to go through a heresy 101 class, but as we naturally come through the book of Romans, we're going to deal with it. It's my job of equipping you. And in this particular case, there's really not much to it. And uh, I've never had much respect or thought much of anybody who followed the line of Calvinism, and I'm going to explain it to you here in just a moment. I mean, uh, there are some religions that you would get into or some heresies you would get into that are very damaging heresies and are very hard to deal with. If you deal with a Roman Catholic, you're dealing with somebody who has, what, almost 1,600 years of tradition behind them that you've got to unweave. If you deal with somebody that, uh, uh, you know, is, is into Buddhism, 
You know, Buddhism comes into effect as all the Far East religions. It comes into effect after 606 B.C. When the, when the times of the Gentiles start, and that's when all those religions come on. So you've got something there that is very entailed and may take you a long time to work through that. But you talk about Calvinism. Calvinism, if, if Calvinism would send you to hell as Roman Catholicism it is, I'd say that going to hell with Catholicism is going in a Cadillac and going to, going to hell with Calvinism is going in a VW without an engine. Not much to it. And of course, we're going to show you how everything works under itself. Now let me explain this to you. And I want you to see this because uh, we're going to do this in two parts. Now the heresy of Calvinism, or we know it today as Reformation theology that is built around the concept of predestination is not hard to grasp. And I want to basically just lay it out for you. And, um, and I'm saying this now because I've got a lot of people out there that want this. So the bottom line is this. I'm going to address some of my remarks to you. And at the same time, I, I know I've, I've got about, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 guys in my life that, around the country that are caught up in the heresy of Calvinism. And uh, I know I'm speaking to you now. I know you guys uh, uh, listen to the website and get everything up there. So uh, maybe this will help you. But it, uh, don't take it personal. But if you want to take it personal, that's okay with me. Now, Calvinism is based on a five-point system. And I want to talk very briefly about this five-point system. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it's pretty much worthless. And this five-point system is what I told you that all cults do. This five-point system is a fabrication of Calvinism in his own mind. Calvinism did exactly what the Roman Catholic Church did. The Roman Catholic Church is built on five concepts. You take any one of those five concepts away, you don't have a Roman Catholic Church. The Roman, and I'm going to give them to you next week. The Roman Catholic Church is built on five concepts. You take any one of those five concepts away, and you can't have a Roman Catholic Church. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church situation, none of those five are found in the Bible. You couldn't find any of the five that that church has built itself on anywhere in the Word of God. Calvinism is built on five principles and five concepts. And just like Roman Catholicism, you couldn't find these five concepts in the Bible with a laser beam and a flashlight. They're simply not there. They're nowhere to be found. Calvinism, people talk about Calvinists are big on the sovereignty of God. I have never found the term sovereignty of God any time in my Bible. Calvinists are big on the sovereignty of God and they don't think about, about free will because Calvinism basically takes your free will away from me. I had a guy say to me one time, he says, so you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Do you believe in free will? And I said, that's correct. He said, well, I don't understand that. And I said, well, I wouldn't think you would. He said, well, I don't understand what you mean. I said, I never find the sovereignty of God one time in the Bible. I find free will 17 times in the Bible by itself. Now, I don't know what you go for in authority, but I'm not going to believe something that I can't find in the Bible when I find the opposite to it in 17 times. And I'm certainly not going to believe you who tells me to believe in the sovereignty of God when they're not in there when I find free will 17 times. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. I'm, I'm a Bible believer. All right, now... Here's the five points that are not in the Bible, but Calvinism is based on. The first one is the term total depravity. Now, given, we talk about man being totally depraved, and you've heard me say that talk about the total depravity of man. That term is not found in the Bible. You'll never find the term totally depra uh, total depravity. 
And at the same time, you'll never find, uh, when I talk about total depravity, I'm not talking about the same way that a Calvinist does. Now, this is another thing you've got to watch out for. Cults will do this. Cults will say something that sounds close to the truth, but when, so, it, so it pairs itself off as being true, but when you really examine it, it's not the truth. Now, let me tell you the difference between my total depravity and their total depravity. My total depravity is this. I believe we're all totally depraved. I believe that in me there's nothing good. I believe in you there's nothing good. I believe that you and I are absolutely, totally without Christ, died and going to go to hell and burn like a torch for a billion, trillion years and on beyond that for all of eternity. I don't think there's anything in your life and my life that has anything good or you and I on our own cannot get to God. Bible says there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. And it, in Romans it gives a whole list of our throats and our minds and our hearts and everything down the line which is wicked. You know how you and I got saved? We didn't get saved on our own. We got saved because God, in spite of my depravity, came down and told me about His Son dying on the cross. If it was left to me to find God, I would never would have found Him. You know how I found Him? Because the Bible says the Son of Man come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know how I got saved? Because He was the true light, the light of every man that coming into the world. On my own, I would have never found Him. Because, yes, I am totally depraved in everything that I do. So it was God who had to make the initiation of coming to touch me, or I would have never gotten saved. Now, a Calvinist teaches total depravity this way. He says that total depravity is based on the fact that you are so depraved that, you, you can't, uh, uh, that God will, will not come in and touch you at all. That you, you don't have the ability that when God does uh, come to you, you don't have the ability to respond to it. You see, when I was an unsaved man living like the things of the world and doing all those things, there was a time in my life, and you got saved the same way, there was a time in my life when God touched me, showed me, dealt with me in some fashion. And at some point in my life, I made the choice that I'm going to follow that. It may have taken me a while, it may take you a while, but in time you get there. A Calvinist, when he teaches total depravity, he says this. He says, it doesn't matter if God touches you because you don't have the ability to respond back to Him after He touches you. So, he says, because you don't have the ability to respond back to God, then God chose some to be saved and some to be lost. Because you don't have the ability to choose. And that's where it starts with total depravity. You don't have the ability to choose God when God first touches your life. So therefore, God made all the choices for us and chose some to go to heaven and chose some to go to hell. Well, that brings us to our second point, unconditional election. And here you have the second point, which is not found in the Bible, the heretical teaching that, uh, that uh, uh, before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, because you and I could not make the choice when God touched our lives, God came down and chose he looked out into, into the future. He saw every man and every woman that ever lived. And because you and I did not have the ability to choose God after He touched us, after He illuminated our life through the Holy Spirit of God, because we were so totally depraved and didn't have the ability to, to, to respond to that, He simply chose. And He said, you're going to, He said, heaven, hell, 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 heaven, hell. And some of you are going to heaven and some of you are going to hell. Now, that brings to the third point, which is called limited atonement. Limited atonement is based on the first two, which simply says, this heretical teaching says, that when Christ came down, He didn't die for everybody on the cross. 
He only died for the ones that He chose. So His atonement on the cross is limited. Limited to the ones that, they cho- that He chose. And, uh, and, and, and that, that's, that's the limited atonement. Certain of the elect, certain of the people, only ones that are going to get to go are the ones He chose. The rest of you, tough apples, you're out. All right? The fourth one is irresistible grace. That is simply this. If you have been chosen, you have no say in it. If you have been chosen, you're gonna, you've been predestined to be saved. And you're going to get saved. If, if you are chosen, if you are one that God picked, you have no say in it. The grace of God is irresistible to you. You can't resist it. And at some point before you die, you're going to get in. And that's irresistible grace. Now, the, the irresistible grace is up against the limited atonement. See? If you're lost, you can't do nothing to get in. And if you're one of the chosen, you're going to get in. Nothing you can do about it to get out. That's how it works. Then you have the perseverance of the saint. That's the fifth one. And that simply is the continuance of the grace of God in our lives that you have to persevere all the way through your life. And of course, that has nothing to do with New Testament Christianity and the way that the Bible lays out the word perseverance. Now those are the five concepts. Now let me break it down and make it real simple for you and show you how this, you know, this figment of Calvin's imagination and everybody in the process comes into being. All right, here it is. Sometime before Genesis 1-1, God looked down in the future and saw all mankind. Because we were totally depraved and we couldn't get to God, God said, what's the point? Why should I come down and light anybody? Because nobody has the chance. I'll just choose some people unconditionally. And some people I'll choose unconditionally, they won't be able to resist my grace and they'll get saved. We'll call them the elect. There's some that won't. And uh, I'm not going to choose them. And when Christ died on the cross and showed up at some point later, then it was a limited atonement. Christ didn't die for everybody. He only died for those who God chose before the foundation of the world and everybody else is out of luck. I don't know what kind of church service they have, but it's got to be the deadest thing you ever saw in your life. I mean, what do you do when you bring a visitor? Do you check them at the door to see if they're one of the elect or not? What are you seeing? Jesus loves me? Sorry about you? You're not part of the chosen few? I mean, what, what, what song would a song like you sang this morning have to do with it? Nothing. I mean, the joy is gone. I mean, what do you do when you leave in a person and you, you, you think now, well, I'm sorry, you, you, you're just not one of us. Of course, that's the whole concept. If you're, if, you're, if you're the chosen, it's irresistible grace. If you're not, then nothing you can do about it one way or the other. You're lost and you're on your way to hell, so I guess... Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you're going to die. And then the elect ones have to persevere. Now, that's what you basically find with a few variations. Now, let me tell you what you got here. Now, next week, I'm going to show you how to make an absolute fool out of a Calvinist. Everything in this world, like I said, when you believe the Bible and you stay with the Bible, the Bible stands on its own own two feet. Any heresy that you get into, any heresy that you're up against, you will find that because it is a man-made deal, Someplace along the line, what they have done is they put up a great front. And that front is, just looks magnanimous. That front is just absolutely stupendous. That front looks like it's the real deal. What every heresy has forgotten and not dealt with is the back door. Because every heresy 
out there has a back door that somebody's forgetting to guard. The back door of a truth that will destroy what they put up in the front. For you as a child of God, you need to learn where the back doors are. You need to learn how to destroy and dismantle any heresy on the face of this planet. Paul said, mark them, expose them, and then you use them to teach others. And like I said, next week we're going to get into the details, and I'm going to show you how that if you ever, if somebody ever says to you, I'm a Calvinist, you ought to say back to them, well, I wouldn't tell anybody that. <laughs> now, last week I gave you a great principle. I hope you got it in your Bible in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28. Remember what it was? I, last week I told you never make an issue when somebody has a problem with you, somebody, somebody has an issue with you. You, you, never, you, never, you never make that issue between you and them. You never take it personal. When you're in the ministry and you're doing God's work, then you understand, first, first and foremost, that any attack on you is not against you. It's against the book and God that you're serving in the ministry. So don't take it personal. And I gave you Proverbs 15, verse 28. It says, never make an issue. Somebody has with you a personal thing. Always make the issue between them and the Bible. That's what you want to do. You got to always remember that. Well, in the same thing, that's what you do with somebody who is teaching heresy or is a heretic. And uh, you make it between them and the Bible, and you personally stay out of it. And I'll show you how to do this next week. But uh, um, this is how you deal with anybody who's teaching something wrong or it's messed up. And then I got to give you two more principles here. Now, I know we're in Romans 8, but you got to see this. Come back to Proverbs chapter 26. You got to get this. You got to get there. I operate on these two principles more than anything else that I do. These two are very discerning principles, and these are absolutely key in you dealing with people. And I don't expect you to fully understand it all this morning when I give you this, but it's a place to start, and, uh, and you can see how it works. Now, Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5 is probably an incredible, one of the greatest verses in the old Bible of dealing with people and your attitude about it. Now look at 26, 4 and 5. The first verse says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like unto him. I want you to look at that very carefully. Let's read it again. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. In other words, you're supposed to be smarter than him. See? In this case, you don't answer him. Now look at verse 5. Ah, just the reverse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Now see, two verses that simply contradict each other. One of them says, answer not a fool, and the other one says, answer a fool. And it looks like a contradiction, doesn't it? But it really, does, it really isn't, because it's showing you that there's two kinds of fools. Now a fool in the Bible is defined in Psalms and Proverbs as somebody who does not have the truth of God. It can be an unsaved man, who is lost without Christ, it can also be a saved person who doesn't have the knowledge of God. Now, there's two kinds of fools. Now, when you say a man, when you talk, nobody wants to be called a fool. But in a Bible sense, a fool is not always a bad thing. A fool is somebody who just has fooled himself, you see. We we use it in in a much worse connotation. A fool is somebody who's been fooled, see. It doesn't mean that you're substandard plant life IQ. It just means you have been fooled. Now, the key is this. How have you been fooled? Because there's two types of fools. There is a fool that is somebody who has just been fooled 
who when you sit down and you open up the Bible and you show them truth, they respond right to it. Then there's the other type of fool who you could open up the Bible all day long and all he wants to do is fight and argue with you. In other words, one fool is teachable and the other fool is unteachable. Now let's put it in context of which one is which. Verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he lest also be like him. Let's set the scenario. Thursday night Bible study. Here we are. Some visitor comes in, maybe you bring him. And that visitor comes in and, and uh, uh, you say, uh, my friend's got a question he'd like to ask. And I'd say, okay, uh, go ahead. We'll let you be the first get good to you here tonight. In fact, because you're our guest, you can pick any book out of the bookstore back there. You know, be really nice to him. And he asked the question, it's totally off the wall. He asked the question, oh, I don't know. He asked the question, you know, uh, uh, oh, I know. He asked the question, really? If the Bible is really true, where did Cain get his wife? Okay. Because the Bible says that there ain't anybody else around. So if the Bible is really true, and I have trouble believing the Bible, if the Bible is really true, where did Cain get his wife? Now, my first answer back is going to break the ice because now you see there's a little tension. Because I know that the Bible is true. Now you brought somebody into the Bible study who, who is somebody who has uh, uh, got some legitimate questions and now, you know, and, and I know you're out there, you're all stiffened because now you're saying, ooh, you just, you know, what's Bob going to do? Well, I mean, that pulpit, he could jump over that pulpit and tear that guy's lungs out. He don't need this kid don't know who he's fooling with, you see? <laughs> Why, he could rip this kid up and beat him out there. He's not going to take my friend out and hook him on the back of his truck and drag him around the parking lot and chains around his ankles, is he? Absolutely not. No, no. We're going to have Joe and those guys just shoot him on the way out in the door. That's all. No. No. The birth says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest they'll be like unto him. I perceive in this kid that he's, not, he's, not a, he's, not, he's got a legitimate question. And I'm going to break the ice and I'm going to say, well, you know, uh, where did Cain get his wife? Let me think. Oh, I know, from his father-in-law. <laughs> now, that's not the answer he wants, but I'm breaking the ice. See? Now, when I take that kid through and show him, the genealogies between the chapter over here and over here and show you that by the time Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, by the time Cain, Cain takes a wife, there's probably, what, 300 years? It's just a turn of your page on the Bible. But when you come down through the genealogies and the timelines, you've got 300 years of kids, of people having kids. But that doesn't, you're not told that in the Bible because that's not the point. The point is the story that he's trying to tell about Cain and Abel. But once you explain it to the kid, he says, Oh, okay, I see now. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You see, he was a fool, but I didn't answer him according to his folly. Because if I would have answered him according to his folly, then I'd have been just as foolish as he was because I wouldn't have had the discernment to see this kid is not a problem kid. This kid has a legitimate question and he wants to know. And when you give him the truth, he'll probably take it. And if he won't take it, he'll work on it and you can give him more truth. And he's a teachable person. Ever been seen people like that? You people meet people like that all your time, all the time. You tell me about them. So there's some fools who have been fooled. And when he comes with a question, notice, answer not a fool according to his folly. I don't answer him according to his folly. I give him an answer from the Bible. Okay? But I don't get caught up in his folly because I know he's a teachable kid who has a legitimate question. 
And I discern the fact that this kid is not coming in with a private agenda. He really wants to know, and he's going to get everything he needs. Afterwards, I'll probably walk him over and I'll say, you know what? Here's a book. I told you you could have a book. You can still have a book. But here's another book you can have. This will really help you figure it out. And you know what else? If you really want to go through and see how this thing works, you know, it was a Bible study night. I didn't have time to go through everything. I'll help you put it through. You, you go out to him. You give him everything that he needs, that if he wants the truth, he responds to the truth. That's the first kind of fool. And you don't answer him according to his folly. Oh, but look at the next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. Now, let me say something to you about this. And I don't mean this in a bad way. I really don't. And if you take it in a bad way, then you probably don't know me or you probably don't want to know me or it doesn't matter if you know me or not. You still want to think what you want to think. But bottom line is this. I'm a nice guy. My goal is to help people. If I got somebody who wants to know the truth and they want to learn the truth, even if they got some issues they're not squared up on, I will spend whatever time it takes. But brother... Bring somebody in or have somebody come in on a Thursday night who has a private agenda. Bring somebody in on a Thursday night who is looking to, looking to cause, a, cause a problem and to inject something into this church uh, or come in with an issue or a chip in his shoulder. And I'll tell you what, it is a gunfight at the OK Corral at high noon. I don't know how to tell you this, and I hope you never have to see it, but there is a side of me that most of you have never seen. Because I am such a nice guy. And I have the patience of the world. And I can spend as much time as it takes. Never lose my temper. Never come to the place where... But there is a, you have never seen the Bob Alexander that is sitting on a coiled spring inside that deals with those kind of fools in the next verse. I know every back door of every heresy that there is. While you're out there looking over the front and you're trying, everybody else is coming up to you and knocking on the door and saying, I'd like to talk to you. And they give you your verses and you give them their verses and you back and forth and you just walk away saying, well, I think I made some progress. And he walks away thinking he's an idiot. He doesn't know anything more about it. He, you give him your verses and you give him, and you're standing at that big front of that heresy at a big old door and you're talking back and forth and you're just giving him your little verses and he's giving you his little verses and you're saying, well, it's just, it's just agree to disagree, you know, Oh, that's a nice little warm, snuggly feeling term today. And come on, I'll come back later and we'll share some. Oh, that's another nice warm little thing. Share each other, you know, and, and you have your way and I have mine. And, and I hope I'll persuade you. And he said, well, I'm hoping I'll persuade you. You see, that's how you do it, see. And while you're there, I'm way in the back. If you look out that back window, there's a fence line back there with a strip of woods on it. And I'm back there and I'm putting camouflage on my face. <laughs> I'm tying down my legs, my pant legs, so they don't catch on the bushes and make any noise. I'm strapping my knife down here and putting my over here and, and got my H&K 9mm over here with my silencer on it, screwing that thing on out there. And while you're up there sharing and talking those things, I'm moving up to the back door and down the line, looking in the back door. And he's up there expecting, who else is coming now? Oh, who else is? Oh, these Baptists, they're so goofy. They come up here like they know something. Oh, send me another one. Send me another one. And about that time, boy, I'll tell you what. I jump out of the shadows, pull his head down, pull out that knife, stick that knife up there with the Japanese call, the wind tunnel in the back of his neck, and ting that thing and scrambled eggs, man. You know what? You never take him on frontal. Find the back door. 
Find where he's not prepared. Find what they didn't teach him about the Bible because truth stands on its own and every heresy has to be added something. And I'll tell you what, I hope you never see that side, but I'll tell you what, you want to push me into a corner in the Bible, I'll come back and bite you. I don't know much anything in life. I don't know how to fix cars. I don't know how to grow tomatoes. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. I spent my whole life doing one thing, and that is finding out the certainty of the words of truth. It's the only thing I know in life, and it's the only thing I'm halfway good at. But it's all I know in life. I couldn't paint a house without getting more paint on me than on the house of my life depended on it. Every time I cut the grass, I break the windows into people's houses because I don't put that little guard down, and I'm throwing rocks out like mortars. Now, next week, I'm going to show you why you do that. You know what people want? You know what, a, you know what a heretic wants? You know what a person who believes in heresy wants? You know why he wants you to come to the front door? Because every, what is the one thing that every heresy and every heretic, what is the one thing that a heretic and a heresy that is not based on the Bible, if the Bible is truth and the heresy is wrong, what is the one thing that he wants so desperately to make him look legit? You know what it is? It's credibility. It's credibility. You ever see it in a church? Somebody gets mad at somebody in the church, they leave the church, they go around and calling everybody and telling them why they left and telling this and telling all that. You know why they got to do that? Because they want credibility. It isn't enough that the issue was the issue and they want to go out and just deal and, and deal with the truth because it isn't the truth. So what they want you to know is, I got credibility. So let me tell you my credibility. Tr truth doesn't need credibility. Truth will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. Truth is truth. Somebody says, oh, you defend the King James Bible. Listen, buster. That book is big enough to take care of itself. And I'll tell you something else. If God needs somebody like me to defend that book, we're all in trouble. That book will take care of itself. I just know how to use it. Ever see one of those old Errol Flynn movies? Captain? Yeah, you love those. I love those too. Captain Blood. Remember that one? Who played the bad guy in Captain Blood? No. Who played the bad guy in Captain Blood? Who been known? You know? Anybody know? Well, I ain't telling you. You seen that movie? And he's out there, and he's there. And he swipes, he misses him, and cuts the candles off. And they're, and they're jumping on tables, kicking them over, bouncing on. That's what you ought to do with the Bible. That's what you ought to do in the Bible. Back in the old days in church camp when kids were trained with the Bible, you know what they used to have? They used to have what they used to call sword drills. Sword drills. Because they want credibility. And what you do when you talk to them and exchange your verses. You give them exactly what they want. Anytime you enter into a Bible discussion based on principles or verses with somebody who's a heretic, all you're doing is giving them credibility that they so desperately desire. Because you're saying to them, you're what you believe could be credible so I'm going to open up the Bible and show you what I believe to try to show you what's wrong. And all he does is say, wow, when you open up that book and go toe-to-toe -to -toe on that, you're giving him the credibility that he wants. You don't do that. You don't do that. And I'm going to show you next week exactly how you do it.
I'm going to show you next week how you answer a fool according to his folly. Because the best of that verse says, let he be wise in his own conceit. That's his problem to begin with. He's a fool because he's fooled himself. The other kid is a fool because somebody else fooled him. There's a big difference between those two fools. You give me somebody else who got fooled by somebody else I can work with. You show me somebody who has fooled himself, you got a problem on your hand. And all you do by answering him, or all you do by, by playing the game and not taking him to the mat with the Bible, is let him be wise in his own conceits. Now here it comes. You take the word predestination or predestinated. Now the bottom line is this. You only, and I wouldn't, this is not how I deal. I'm giving this to you. And if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're a predestinator and you're one of those guys, I hope this rings a bell with you. And you want to come by on Thursday night at 7 o'clock, come on by anytime you want to. But you take that word predestinate and predestinated. You know, you only find those words four times in your Bible. Now, the Calvinists would have you to believe that it's hundreds of times through the Bible. Four times. Two in Romans 8, two in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Now, the problem is this. The word where you find predestination or predestinated is never used in the context of salvation. Now, I know a Calvinist couldn't get that. Because you're going to find out that the why, one of the reasons when you start dealing with somebody who's a Calvinist, I guarantee you, a Calvinist couldn't define the passage on predestination in the Bible if his life depended on it. Because here's the real issue. I've never met in 35 plus years of ministry, ever met somebody who believed in Calvinism or most cults, whoever, whoever had a clue about how the Bible went together. Never had a clue. Never had a clue. Now, when it comes to the Bible... It, it takes a lot to impress me. I had men in my life that, uh, boy, I'll tell you what. I mean, uh, they were guys who knew the Bible. And uh, when I looked at their lives and I saw what they taught, saw the time they spent, saw what God gave them, saw the truth that they had, that impressed me. But I'll tell you what, it takes a lot in the Bible to impress me with somebody. And I'm never impressed. Maybe I'm just not this stupid. I have never met a Calvinist or anybody associated with Calvinism in any way, shape, or form that ever knew anything about the Bible. And it always bothered me that a guy would have the great eternal truths of predestination and have the great deep concept of God before the foundation of the world through his foreknowledge, choosing all of that, that he could get that out of the Bible when he couldn't understand anything else. I don't know about you, maybe it's just me. I have a tough time believing God would just give one great depth truth and not give you any more. I think all the deep things are tied together in the Bible. You don't just find one great deep thing unless somebody just gave you that one great deep thing. I'm not impressed with it. I'm not. I had a while back, a guy that's a Calvinist, and he, uh, uh, somebody had sent me a, a Bible study that he did on the gap. You know the big hole between Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 1, 2? And this guy was leading the Bible study and this thing about the gap. And I'll tell you what, it was the most silliest thing I had ever read in my life. It wasn't even, it wasn't even an intelligent attempt to explain it. It was the most wishy-washy. All it did was tell me that this guy who claims to have the great eternal decrees of, of this and that and the eternalness of God and predestination can't figure out what happened between Genesis chapter 1, 1 and verse 2. His argument was, well, we don't know for sure there's a gap in the Bible. I got news for you, bucko. There's two gaps in the Bible. 
And you'll never figure out the first one until you see the second one. And the fact that you don't even know where the second one is tells me why you'll never figure out the first one. Come on, if you're going to pretend you know the Bible, then pretend. Don't tell me you got the eternal decrees of all this. You can't tell me what God was doing in Genesis chapter 1, 1 and verse 2. You can't figure it out and read it back to the second thing he's doing. I got one for you. Eternal decrees, predestination for the foundation of the world. Take me to the definitive passage in the Bible and show me when it comes down verse by verse. It lays out what God was doing before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right up to the time that we're living in, in clear, black and white. You couldn't miss it unless it was you. If you got all these things he was doing, why don't you know in the Bible where to go to figure it out? You don't know. Somebody told you that. Somebody told you that. Oh, you got the deep things all right. You couldn't lay out the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven if somebody put a gun to your head. You couldn't give me the pattern of the book of Acts, the book of Hebrews, the book of Matthew if, if your life depended on it. I got one for you. Tell me something. Mr. Deep Man, you're the man who knows the predestination of the world before Genesis chapter 1-1. God gave you that. What? Did he quit with you after that? How come in your Old Testament you got Genesis? You know what Genesis is? Book of the beginning. You got Genesis. Genesis is the defining book in the Old Testament. Everything is defined in Genesis. In Genesis, you got Genesis, and then you got four historical books Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, did you notice in the New Testament? You got a definitive book, and you got four historical books. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, historical books. Then you got Acts, your definitive book. Now, let me ask you a question. Why did he put the definitive book first in Old Testament with four historical books after, and then in the New Testament give you four historical books and then put the definitive book last? Come on. Give me something juicy. Come on. Tantalize me. Come on. Show me what you got. Give me something real tasty and juicy. Give me some of them nuggets you and God got. Explain that one to me. Oh, Mr. Foundation before the foundation of the world. Oh, Mr. God foreknowledge who looked down and chose this and chose that. Well, you know what? You better be checking your dipstick because I'm not sure you're one of the chosen. You ain't got the answers. You may have deceived yourself. Oh, I see. You got the great deep things of God. Let me tell you something. That Bible stands on itself. And when you have truth, you have all truth. You don't get one truth and miss the rest. Maybe some of you do. You don't get one truth. Your life right now, wherever you're at in this church, ought to be get to the point in your life, like I said in Proverbs last week, that you have one goal. And that goal is no matter what stage of your spiritual walk you're in, you ought to have one goal. And that is to know the certainty of the words of truth. And that's what a Calvinist doesn't know. He doesn't have a clue. He couldn't get the Bible if I jumped up in his lap and called him mama. He couldn't figure it out if his life depended on it. You don't have to kid me about it, man. Now let's do a terrible thing to our Calvinist friends. And if you're listening here tonight and you're a Calvinist out there and you're one of my buddies or one of my former buddies, so I got all the friends I can afford anyhow. Let's do a terrible thing. Let's use the Bible. Let's just use the Bible. Now, the, now, the definitive passage, and a Calvinist wouldn't know this, what is the definitive passage on predestination in the Bible? It's Romans chapter 8. 
He couldn't give you the definitive passage on predestination if his life depended on it. I already told you that every time you find predestined in the Bible, it has nothing to do with salvation. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. Now, here we go. Let's read it and set a context. Ooh, that's scary. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. There it is. To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, second time you find it in the Bible, them he also called, and whom he called, him, them he justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now let me read it the way a Calvinist reads it. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be saved. Is that what it says? You see, predestination doesn't have anything to do with salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, where you find it the other time over there, it's predestined under the adoption of children. So that brings it back to Romans chapter 8. The second time you find it in verse 11, it's predestined to get an inheritance. Predestination, the four times you find it in the Bible, never in the context, has anything to do with salvation. He wants it to be so bad that he makes it because he's fooled himself. The context of Romans chapter 8 is not salvation. I already told you. The context of Romans chapter 8 is you getting your glorified body. When you got saved, you know what you were predestined at that point to get? His glorified body. Read it! That's the second thing a Calvinist can't do. He can't read. And I even forgot what the first thing he can't do is. Oh, he didn't know the Bible. Look at verse 29. For whom he did foreknow. Him he also predestinate, watch it, to be saved? No, to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestination doesn't start in your life to the day you get saved. And the day you get saved, you at that point are predestined to get a body just like Jesus Christ. And that's what Romans chapter 8 is about. It isn't about salvation. You couldn't find a verse on salvation in Romans chapter 8 or any chapter on the other side of it anywhere in the book. It's not dealing with that. It's dealing with that when you did get saved, God predestinated you to get His glorified body. I mean, they don't have a clue how the context fits. He doesn't have a clue. When you get over to Ephesians chapter 1, you know what it says? Ask the Calvinist sometimes. In Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, you know what it says? 20 times. 20 times in three chapters. You'd think that'd be significant, wouldn't you? God's mentioned something three times in 20 chapters. You might want to mark that. You might want to write that down. You know what he says? 20 times in three chapters? In him. In Christ. In whom? You couldn't find a Calvinist to explain to you doctrinally what he's saying in Ephesians chapter 1 when he keeps making your reference 20 times in three chapters to in Christ, in him, in whom, if his life depended on it. He doesn't have a clue. He doesn't have a clue. Just because he doesn't have a clue when he comes to knowing the Bible. I mean, I'm not telling, I'd hate to throw the word stupid around, and that's not a very nice term, but when you're dealing with a second time who you answer according to folly because they're wise in their own conceit, sometimes they need to be showed how stupid they really are. So I say this to all my Calvinist friends out there, why is it you embrace stupidity as it were a virtue? You know what you remind me of? You remind me of the guy that went into the Missouri Motor Vehicles to get his license plate, and he wanted to get one of those personalized license plates. And he said he couldn't get it, so I went down to, the, down to the office of records and changed his name to Z74319. 
The term in Christ for you. The term in Christ refers to God through His foreknowledge. Let's talk about foreknowledge for a minute. Because this is a big spiritual thing. Oh, God's foreknowledge. Oh, God's foreknowledge. What does foreknowledge mean? It means to foreknow. Oh, is that all? Yes. God knows everything. You know right now, God knows who will save and who won't get saved. You know right now, God knows everything that you're going to get at the judgment seat of Christ, whether you will or whether you won't. He knows how it's going to go. You know what separates that from Calvinism? God lets you choose which way you go. You have a choice. You have a choice. You know, I always thought predestination was stupid. Why stop with salvation? I mean, if God knows everything and He predestined you to be saved, then He probably predestined you to get a millennial inheritance, didn't He? You think God just used it one time and then said, well, I'm done with that. The bottom line is God never did use it. It's free choice, free will all the way through the Bible. You're just too stupid to see it. Talking to my friends out there now. The term in Christ refers to God through His foreknowledge choosing all men in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Let's say we're all unsaved. We know as unsaved people, we're anathema. We're God's enemy. We're enmity against God, Romans says. And in you and me as an unsaved person, we can't fellowship with God. Let me ask you a question. How does a holy God, who in the Old Testament before he'd walk through the camp, they had to get everything unclean out of his way? How does a holy God who lives in the, in the, in the, in the concept of holiness and never, how does God, how does, I mean, we think too much of ourselves sometimes. We think, well, because God, uh, you know, uh, uh, stop and think about it. You and me are the vilest sinner in the world. And we ain't done nothing wrong. We're a violent sinner because of the fact we got it from Adam. How does a holy God deal with you and me? You know, the Bible says, and it gives you an example all the way through the Bible. How did God come down in any place in your life? How did God come down in, when he saw you unsaved, or you unsaved, or Roy, you unsaved, or you unsaved? How did God come down when he saw you unsaved? How did God come down when he, saw, when he saw you one say, how did a holy God who was righteous and has no sin and there's no darkness in him and he has no concept and no appearance of evil, how did a holy God who abhors and hates and judges sin and created a place for it that'll be as far away from where he is, how did a holy God ever come down and let you get saved? Let you get saved. Let you get saved. Let me get saved. Oh, I know the answer. You know what a Calvinist will tell you? He'll tell you the same thing every mealy-mouthed preacher will tell you out there who doesn't know the Bible. You know what the standard answer is? Oh, because God hates the sin, but God loves the sinner. See how nice that sounds? Man, that makes me warm and fuzzy inside. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Now, the only problem with that is that that's not true. That's not true. And there again, people say that, don't know their Bible. My Bible tells me that if you're unsaved, the wrath of God abides on you already. You see, this is the difference between knowing your Bible and not knowing your Bible. This is the difference between Bible doctrine or becoming a Calvinist. 
You know, just like the five things you find in Calvinism, not in the Bible, you know, you can't find anywhere in the Bible where the Bible even remotely suggests or says or even hints at that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. You know who said that? Gandhi said that. Now, how in the world did Gandhi, who was a Hindu in his teaching, weave its way into Baptist churches today when it has nothing to do with the Bible? God doesn't love the sin and or love the sinner and hate the sin. God hates the sin and the sinner. And before you're saved, God looks at you and you're as good as in hell with the Lord door shut, the key rusted up, locked up and thrown away and you ain't ever going to get out. And God's wrath already abides on you and God does not love you. Then how do we get saved? You know what God did? Ephesians chapter 1. In his foreknowledge. Oh, this will kill a Calvinist right on the spot. But this is why it's 20 times in three chapters. Hello! You know what God did? The only way God could love you and put you in a place where he could touch you is he had to look at you through something sinless. So yes, in his foreknowledge, he knew that Christ was going to die. And so when he looked at an unsaved man, he saw them in Christ through the death of Christ. And that's the only way he could deal with you. That's why you find 20 times in the first three chapters, in Christ, in whom, in him. You know what God did? God took his son. God, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, put all spiritual blessings and praise in his son. God put salvation in his son. Colossians chapter 2 and 1 says that all things were made by him and for him, and by him all things consist. God put everything he did in his son. It's in him. That's why 20 times in three chapters, in him, in him, in Christ, in whom. 20 times in three chapters because God took everything and put it in his son. Now, you want to get salvation? Here's how you get it. You get in him. That's salvation. And you get in him, not because God chose you in him. God chose everybody in him. Because if he didn't chose everybody in him, you couldn't get in any way, shape, or form. Because God's holy and we're not. So God chose every man, every woman in him. Even the ones that were not Never got saved. Even the ones who'll never get saved. God is not willing that any should perish. So we put everybody in his foreknowledge through Christ in Christ. And then it's up to you. He made the first move. You made the second move. I mean, isn't that the way God always does it? You can't get there on your own. You and I could never get to a holy God. So he came to you. He came to you. He came to you. Now let me show you how this thing works. Let me show you how this thing works. And a Calvinist could never get that because he hasn't got a clue how to figure out his Bible. And I'm saying it again. This is not a mean thing. I know I've said a lot of things today that some of you may perceive as mean, but truly, if you would come into my Bible study or you come into my office and you're the first kind of fool, man, you got everything you want. I'll buy you dinner. I'll buy you this. I'll get you that. If you need a new car, we'll get you one. If you need it fixed, fine. Whatever it's got to be, I'll help you. You come in a second time, no quarter ask, no quarter given. Now, a Calvinist could never get to that because he hasn't got a clue of how to fit his beggar and figure out his Bible. Now, here's what you got. He has absolutely no ability, no ability to structurally lay out his Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He couldn't format the books of the Bible, the doctrine of the Bible, if his life depended on it. Now, here's his problem in a nutshell. And I'm going to show you this in detail next week when I show you how to dismantle them by going in the back door. So if I suggest to you want to do something this week to prepare for next week's messages, go to Mickey's Surplus. 
Get you a trench knife, get you some camo paint, get you some camouflage and wear it next week. I'm going to show you how to go in the back door when they're not looking and take them out. If you're not going to do that, well, never mind. I won't tell you how, what to wear next week. We'll just forget that. Anyway. Now, Calvinist has one concept. He's one-dimensional. And he reads that concept into everything in his Bible. I find this example a lot. <clears throat> now, we're Christians. You know what we have a tendency to do when we read the Bible? We have a tendency to read the Bible from a Christian standpoint. You don't ever want to do that. You never want to read the Bible from a Christian standpoint. You know why? Because Christianity is only a, uh, 2,000 years of a 7,000-year program that God's got, and the rest of that 7,000 years don't have anything to do with Christianity. You never want to read the Bible from a Christian standpoint. Certainly don't read it from a Baptist standpoint. You want to read the Bible from God's standpoint. You want to see what God is doing throughout the Bible because it doesn't always relate to you and me. And when you've got people, saved people, who don't understand that, what they do is they read the Bible and they read it from a Christian standpoint and they read what we believe as Christians in everything in the Bible. And that's a terrible thing to do because it, 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 it's going to mess you up because the Bible was not written from a Christian standpoint. Christianity, as the Bible lays it out, is only 2,000 years of a 7,000 years, look on the chart there, of a 7,000 year program. So when you take 2,000 years and read it into everything out there, you know what you get? You get really messed up when it comes to the Bible. That's why there's people that believe that the people in the Old Testament were saved just like you and I are saved. Now, you know how, I, without getting into a great theological discussion, let's just keep it simple. You know how I know that people in the Old Testament weren't saved like me and you? Because they didn't go to the same place when we go when they die. Hello? Wouldn't that be your first clue? Guy said one time, well now, back in Genesis chapter 6, you got those sons of God. And I said, yeah, those sons of God are giants. They're, a, they're of an offspring of the sons of God coming down and cohabiting with the daughters of men and producing a race of deformed giants. Oh, no, 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 no. That's heresy. That's heresy. That's heresy. No, no. What you got there is that those sons of God were saved men who were marrying unsaved women. Ever hear that? And I said, oh, I didn't know that. My, my, my. Let me see if I got this right. Those sons of God were saved people who were marrying unsaved people. That's right. And there was no angels coming down? No. So it was two human beings, one saved, one lost, marrying. Yes. Okay. Where'd the giants come from? And before I gut you, <laughs> let me ask you one more thing. Sons of God saved and lost. So there were saved people back in Genesis 6? Yes. And they were the sons of God? Yes. Here, right here, neck over. Blade up, point left. Down into the juggler, and before you put it in, you say, then how come all those saved people didn't get on the ark? <laughs> all those saved people back there in Genesis 6 and only 8 got on the ark what happened to them oh I know they weren't part of the elect oh I know they weren't part of the elect <laughs> there's a back door to every heresy that's taught learn the back door 
Don't do a frontal assault when you can and waste 50 guys when you can go in the back door with two. It's just that simple. Now, they may not teach that at BBC or down at Liberty or someplace else, but they teach that at Fort Benning. I know. Now, he has one problem. He reads everything into this. I'll tell you another one. Well, the people in the Old Testament look forward to the cross. See? And we look back. I'm sorry, what was that again? <laughs> well, the people in the Old Testament look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. Really? If that's true, then how come they missed him? You know that little bit of theology goes against, at least, in my mind right now, 175 verses in the Old Testament that tell me different. You know what the difference is? You, somebody told you that. You don't know your Bible. You couldn't take me to Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 28. You couldn't take me anywhere in Joel or Hosea or Nehemiah. You couldn't take me anywhere to show me the principles that counter that. But that's what they do. Now, here's what happens. My Bible says, I want you to see it. My Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. All right, a Calvinist, he says, well, that's the elect. See? He reads Calvinism into everything. He says, when I say that God is not willing that any should perish, he says, but that's just the elect. See? When I tell him in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whosoever, he'll say, no, 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 that's just the elect. It's not whosoever in anybody, it's just whosoever in the elect. See? He's got one truth, and he reads it into everything in his Bible. When I show him in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, says that Christ died for the ungodly, he'll say, oh, no, 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 no. The ungodly were the elect. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 <coughs> says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said, no, 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 no. That's not whosoever in the whole world. That's whosoever the elect. See what he does? And the reason he does that is he couldn't lay out and explain the Bible of his life dependent on it. He would have no more idea why the book of 2 Peter uh, clearly puts it in perspective that God died and bought the sins of lost people just like he did you and me. He couldn't find that passage of his life dependent on it. He couldn't explain the context of in Christ laid out in the book of Ephesians like I gave to you of his life dependent on it. Over there in Revelation chapter 17 verse 14, the, it breaks down everybody in the Bible. <coughs> In Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, <coughs> it breaks down everybody in the Bible in three categories. The called, the chosen, and the faithful. The called, the chosen, and the faithful. Every man in the Bible, every woman in the Bible falls into the called, the chosen, or the faithful. And a Calvinist couldn't break those down and lay them out if his life depended on them. You know why? He doesn't know his Bible. He knows a few little words. He knows a few little verses. Now, I'm saved this for the last you know the greatest joke God ever pulled on a Calvinist? It isn't even in the Bible. Well, it's kind in the Bible. I love this. Now, if you have a real King James Bible, in the front you'll have what we call the epistle to the dedicatory. You ought to have that in your Bible. I'm kidding you. There's some King James Bible that don't have it in. You may have a real one, but I'm saying you ought to have it. You know what the dedicatory is? The dedicatory was written by the translators of the King James Bible to show you and me why they translated it. It puts it into a historical perspective of what they were dealing with and why they decided to come out with a King James Bible. And in the dedicatory in the front of your Bible, it's a very lengthy thing, and we're not going to read it, but you ought to read it. I want to read it to you one passage here. 
that, I, it, that and the Calvinist wouldn't know if his life depended. And this is the greatest joke God ever pulled on him. It says this, toward the end. There ain't no paragraphs in it, so I can't give you the paragraph. It's just toward the end, about halfway. So that if on the one side we shall be trudenced by instruments, oh, excuse me, trudenced by popish persons at home and abroad, who therefore will malign us because we are poor instruments to make God's holy truth to be yet more and more known unto his people, who they desire still to keep in ignorance and darkness. Ah, no, the first thing your King James Bible was written for was against the Roman Catholic Church. That's popish persons. Kind of a crude thing to say, isn't it? That's not politically correct. Popish persons who desire to keep their people in the dark instead of the truth, who the King James translators desire to give every man a common Bible, the truth, and the Roman Catholic Church did what? Malign them for that? So they're telling you right now so you don't miss it. You don't miss it. That this book was written. Know why men hate this book? They hate it for as much as was in it by why it was written in the first place. Hey, the writers of your King James Bible, the translators, sat down, all 47 of them, and sat down and, and, and wrote this dedicatory and put it in there so you, 400 years later, would know exactly why that Bible was written. It was written against two people groups. It was written against popish persons. The Roman Catholic Church. Let's read the next group. Whom they desire still to keep in ignorance and darkness. Or if on the other side we shall be maligned by self-conceited brethren who run their own ways and give liking unto nothing but what is framed by themselves and hammered on their own anvils. You know who those conceited brethren are? They're the Calvinists of their day. Now you talk about a slap in the face. You talk about, I'm a Calvinist. Don't tell anybody around here. You talk about feeling like an idiot. The very Bible that you preach out of is standing in the dedicatory was written against the very thing you believe. I'm not sure idiot is even the right word for you at this point. Greatest trick God ever pulled on him. Now, in closing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you this. For, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Now, I've said some things this morning, and I, and I hope I prefaced my harsh remarks by showing you in Proverbs that how you deal with two different people. But if you still want to take the position of that position that, you know, I was unjustified in saying what I'm saying, well, then you know what? Do what you got to do. But I, I'm telling you, and it's, it's not a personal attack. And if you're listening out there and you're a Calvinist and you're my friend, I'm always be your friend even though I think you're an idiot. That's okay. <laughs> but I'm just telling you the truth. When you're dealing with somebody who denies the Bible in the, in the vein that I just showed you, and you ain't seen it yet, wait till next week. Next week, next week, uh, it, it, we will absolutely devastate it just by going through and showing you how this thing put together. And I'll show you the back door is as wide as it is on a farm barn. I know this sounds harsh, and don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not saying that those people aren't saved. I'm not saying that somebody who's in a, you say, well, I know a Calvinist, and he's a great person. I'm not saying they're not a great person. <clears throat> well, I have a friend who's a Calvinist, and he's a saved. I didn't say they weren't saved. He said, well, I have a Calvinist, and he, I know a friend, he's really, I didn't say he wasn't dedicated. 
Hey, he may be very gracious. He may be a very kind person. He may be a very loving person. He may love his wife. He may love his kids. He may like dogs. He may like animals. He may be, he may be a giving person. He may be a forgiving person. He may be a great police officer, a great fireman. He may have great insight into the stock market. He may be able to fix your automobile. He may be able to fix your, your, paint your house. He may be able to fix your computer. He may be able to do your landscaping. He may be able to sell you great insurance. He may be able to, great to buy a car from. You may be invest your money with him and make a lot of money off of it in the stock market. He may be a great you know, pharmacist that he fills your prescriptions. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is when it comes to teaching you and knowing the Bible and he tries to teach you the Bible, go roast a weenie. You don't waste five minutes with it. It's a waste of time. Claiming to know the incredible deep concepts of the Bible when you can't lay out the other 99% it's not the way you want to go. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm done. Here it is. I'll leave you with this. See, I was taught by the old school. And the old, and I, I, I say it just as clear as I'm here. I, I know I, I am out of place in the 21st century. I am. I'm, I'm in the wrong, I would, in, not God's fault, but I'm, I, in my mind, I'm in the wrong century. I'm a, I'm a duck out of water in the 21st century when it comes to the Bible. <clears throat> if I'd have been born in the 18th and the 19th century, I'd have fit right in. I'm about as out of, I'm about, I'm about as, as, as out of place in the world that we live in today as I could ever hope to be in a Christian world. And that's just where I'm at. I can't do anything about it at this point. If I had my brothers, I'd have been back there with William Carey and David Brainerd and, and Mordecai Ham and, and Billy Sunday and back there through uh, Adonijah Judson and Dr. Livingston and all of that stuff. But here I am. Here I am. Here I am. I'm where I'm at. And where I'm at is where I'm at. I'm happy. I'm happy. Somebody says, are you, are you enduring your salvation or enjoying your salvation? Well, I'm enjoying my enduring is what I'm doing. But I want to leave you with this. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, 18, and 19. Pick it up in verse 16. <clears throat> now that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Watch it very carefully. That, make, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and ye being rooted, rooted, and grounded in love. You see, last week I gave you the wrong root, root of bitterness. This is the right root. There's your counter root. You don't want to be rooted in bitterness. You want to be rooted in, in, in love. All right, verse 18, <clears throat> may be able to comprehend with all saints, here it comes, what is the breadth, the length, and the depth, and the height. Then God has a breadth to him, God has a length to him, God has a depth to him, and God has a height to him. Now, you want to talk about the deep things of God? You want to impress me with what you know about God and the deep things you know in the Bible? Then you just sit down and explain to me what the breadth of God is. You explain to me from the Bible what the, the length of God is. You explain to me the Bible what the height of God is. And you explain to me the, what, the, what the depth of God is. Now, I don't know. I'll just give you a clue. Three of them are physical. And in our world, we have three of them called the third dimension, the three dimensions. But there's a fourth dimension. And that fourth dimension is God. And you as a child of God need to have all three plus the fourth one. Now, please don't kid me. Please, 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 please. Sell it someplace else. Please don't insult my intelligence. Don't tell me. Please don't tell me. 
you understand the great eternal decrees of predestination. Please don't tell me you understand the great foreknowledge that God be down the foundation of the world, look down through here, and he chose this and chose that, and the sovereignty of God, and lay all that out. Please don't take me everywhere you're going to take me and lay all that deep stuff out that is so deep and so unbelievably deep and so much depth and all that stuff when you can't tell me and line it out in the Bible and lay out for me the four concepts of the breadth of God, the length of God, the depth of God, and the height of God. When you can take me in the Bible and show me what those there, then I'll believe you got something going with God in the Bible. Until that point, you're a rookie. You might be a nice person, you may be a nice guy, but you want to get depth in the Bible, you want to learn, you want to know the certainty of the words, that ought to be the goal of every man and woman in this building, that you learn the certainty of the Word of God and you understand God in that concept. That is what God has for you. That is what God wants for you. And when you finally get there, you will see how absolutely goofy and ridiculous the concept of Calvinism, predestination, or Reformation theology is. Why? Because it isn't based on the Bible. It's based on five things that aren't in the Bible. And when you get the deep things of the Bible, oh, you see, it'll work for some of you. Somebody sits down and tells you something you don't know about and how deep it is, you're left with a decision. Maybe it is or maybe it isn't. And when it sounds good, you go, wow. I don't go wow very much. I went wow with the guys that showed me the Word of God years ago. But there isn't many people out there that I go wow at anymore. The Bible is wow to me every day I open it. But I'm going to tell you something. It's all phony today. It isn't real today. And there's no depth to it today. Nobody understands God in these four concepts. You explain to me how the three physical dimensions fit into God and then tell me which one is the fourth dimension that is the spiritual dimension and then lay it out for me. Come on. Come on, show me how that is. You want to impress me with the Bible? You want to talk to me about the deep things you know? Just start with that. And I'm with you. You couldn't do it if your life depended on it. And yet he told you that this is the key to the fullness of God. You want to have the fullness of God? It starts right there with those four things. And that will be the goal of every child of God in this room this morning. And that will be the goal to everybody that's listening to this tape. That ought to be your goal. Is to come to the place that you know as a child of God that the certainty of the words of truth, that you never get bamboozled by somebody who wants to impress you by some heresy that they've got or some heretic that wants to put out something different that he wants you to follow him on. This church has one thing. It's the book. And that book is all the defense that it needs, and that's why it never has to worry about something like Calvinism, any other heresy out there, because as you should well know now, you watch some deep things, I'll deal you some cards, you'll wonder where that hand came from. That is the depth of the Word of God. That is the breadth of Almighty God, the length of Almighty God, and the height of Almighty God. Every one of those four things not only fit into your life as a child of God, it fits in a connection to God throughout that whole Bible. You know what the key is? Being able to take him in your life and connect him in there and laying the whole thing out. That's all it takes. Easy, simple. Well, I can see I'm boring you. So we'll stop there. Next week, we'll take this thing apart and I'll show you exactly how to deal with it. Not in this particular area alone, any cult you want to get into. I'll show you how that you, where the back door starts and how you take him through and how you deal with it. Let's pray. Father,